So just for some more context here, because antagonism is such an important concept for Slavoj and in sublime object all the way up. <clears throat> so the big question for Slavoj would be getting him to explain how he conceptualizes the difference between antagonism, which involved an ex external split, and contradiction, which involves an internal split. So the idea is that class antagonism, you, ha you have an external split in the sense of, yes, you wouldn't have proletariats without capitalists, and yet at the same time, they are they are in a, a struggle against one another and there's another sense where you can say yeah but the proletariat is not the capitalist so there, there's a sense in which yes the capitalist structural position in society dialectically depends on the position of the proletariat and vice versa but there's an important sense that marx emphasizes where it's like yeah but there's also a radical split They're, they still stand in a kind of external relationship to one another um and so it, this is the idea of antagonism is it involves this external split where yes this, there's a structural conflict but one side is trying to undermine the other side right um and you also have to think of them as external to one another while understanding they're also dialectically dependent on one another. Right. Interdependent. Okay. Yeah. And so, right. quick, so if it's outside, if, if it's like the, you know, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, then it would be, you, this is a structural, oh, it's antagonistic then in that case. Not the same thing as contradiction. A contradiction would be internal, you're saying. Exactly. And so the great example that comes to mind, I always like to use. So... So, yeah, it's just important to realize there is an external relationship. Capitalists are not proletariats. They just also have a dialectical interdependence on one another, too. But the internal conflict would be when a thing itself is simply contradictory within itself, right? So this is what Hegel provides us with throughout the whole trajectory of phenomenology of spirit. We'll start with sense certainty because it, I think it's the easiest mode of consciousness to see this. So, you know, the basic idea that people present of Hegel's dialectic is you have a thesis, you have an antithesis, then you have a synthesis, right? Well, the idea is like, okay, so you start with this one thing and then you go to its opposite thing and then those two things combine and then that new thing that is the combination of the two things now finds its opposite and then they combine and Todd and Todd especially, but also Zizek, I mean, they, they have spent a good majority of their intellectual careers critiquing the thesis synthesis, uh, the, the thesis antithesis synthesis triad. And when you read Hegel, that was always one of the problems I had reading Hegel. I was, I was always trying to make each mode of consciousness fit that schema. And they don't because here's what's going on. Since certainty is internally split. The reason it gets undermined is not because it can, it, it, it ends up opposed to another mode of consciousness. Say so it's not like sense certainty and perception are opposed and then they morph into understand. That's not what's going on. The whole point is that sense certainty is internally contradictory. It's internally split within itself. And so sense certainty is trying to 
reach the certainty of knowing its object. So anything, I'm surrounded by books right now. Um, I'm looking at a copy of Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism. So I would say this is this, right? Like I want to point at it and say this, like I'm naming its particularity. I'm getting at its raw singularity by pointing at it and saying this. That's what sense certainty wants to know. It wants the certainty of knowing an object in its brute singularity, right? But of course, here's the problem. In the domain of language, when I look at it and say this, this is actually the most universal concept. I can say this of everything that exists. This. So in no way am I... No, go ahead. This, this, there, that. Uh, here, in, now. Here, now, exactly. And there can also mean... I, you. Then, yeah. These are all just universal placeholders, yeah. Yeah, and so... In trying to speak, to, to, to know with certainty, the, the have knowledge of this particular... I'm not even trying to state, oh, I have a copy of Mark Fisher's book. I'm trying to speak the singularity of this copy of capitalist realism. In trying to speak its singularity, I speak its universality. And so the, the mode of sense certainty is itself contradictory or self undermined it's internally split between the intent of speaking particularity and the actuality of speaking universality yeah and so the contradiction is within itself and it's through this that it opens up oh okay i've reached a structural deadlock what i'm doing internally fails well okay maybe maybe i get the particularity of the thing through incorporating its universal qualities. So that is what perception is. It's the failure or deadlock of sense uh, certainty that gets us to viewing the object in a new way, which is it's, perception. But it's not a synthesis. Yeah, and it'd be similar if you were like, you know... I like to wake up early and I see myself as the kind of person who goes to bed and then wakes up early. But I also keep staying up really late and then sleeping in, right? Well, this is a contradiction, right? And and sorting through that contradiction, um, it, you might turn out to be someone who uh, approaches these things differently once you've conceptualized or made up some sort of way of You've symbolized you've symbolized it once you kind of made sense of your situation. Like for me, it was kind of realizing, oh, I have a bunch of baggage from old jobs I used to work where I had these kind of determinate deadlines. And, and I had anyway, just the point is, is that we have our own inner contradictions we're working through when it comes to the way that we identify with certain things and that it is thinking those things through that leads to what we call a more examined life. Yeah. So, you know, it's great you you brought this example in. This is Hegel's key point, though, when he says, not only as substance, but also as subject. The point is, is, okay, philosophers have no problem granting that human beings are contradictory beings. Subjectivity is contradictory. We contradict ourselves all the time. We find ourselves, now, of course, psychoanalysis comes in, the concept of death drive, and really fleshes this out, right? But 
everybody has an you know a default understanding of how human beings are inconsistent with themselves and so it's easy to just say well human subjects are contradictory they have internal splits but what hegel's doing and with his ontology is he's saying this is true of reality itself reality itself is self-contradictory or internally split and so this is why zizek uses the paradoxes from quantum mechanics to illustrate not only as substance but also as subject that being itself or reality itself is also based on inconsistencies contradictions and so this is what a dialectical ontology would be um in the hegelian sense so basically he's saying just like human beings subjects are contradictory objects also are internally divided and so yeah that's uh that was a good i'm glad you brought yourself into it yeah it is this is a deadlock i'm still working through the my actual sleeping patterns that's the real <laughs> yeah we're gonna be yeah so um okay so remember slavoj's concept of antagonism was developed and influenced by lacrau and moofs or Mafa. i'm not sure how to pronounce the name but uh their book hegemony and socialist strategy this book had a really profound impact on slavoj's thinking had a big influence on what he does in sublime objective ideology and going forward in his other works and uh they they were concerned with a generalized antagonism beyond class antagonism that permeates the entire social field and so i i'm not very familiar with their work but the idea is that society itself is internally split like we're talking about or you know it in, in internally antagonistic and that this internally split social order in all of its various particularity um it all this 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 structural built-in antagonism finds itself in various forms of antagonism class racial antagonisms uh, gender antagonisms all of these different forms of antagonisms are manifestations or incarnations of a grander more structural antagonism and now you're going to sit there and go well what is it i'm not really sure they act as far as i understand they just act like somehow the social order itself is antagonistic this is something i need to know better but i know that this this idea of a generalized antagonism influenced slavoj so I, sk I skimmed that book one time so listen to my criticism of those authors and everything they've ever done just kidding I, uh, yeah. I did have you read yeah yeah enough to where I actually think I could tell you I actually have some real criticisms of the way that not not of their thinking but of the way that they get pre presupposed by a lot of people but I don't want to get into it too much because I actually would want to reread it a little more carefully before I ever did such a thing well i think i mean as far as i understand they're post-marxists who are trying to figure out how to still be marxists in a way yeah yeah i think that's true and i and okay. and you know and and uh the problems they're dealing with are real problems and uh they you know i think they give it a real go so um but uh, you know we'll we'll deal with that book some other day 
Okay, so... Um, Swole, I don't know what you mean. Hold on. Everyone in the chat, for all future time, I need to make one of my little stream reminders so that everyone is always reminded of what I'm about to say. But if you say something in chat, you need to say... So, for instance, if you say, if you say, isn't that Freud's thing, which is what Swole said, and Swole, sorry for being my example, but you're going to be my example here. Isn't that Freud's thing? That is a universal placeholder. We were just talking about this. The word that means everything and anything. You have to tell us what you mean. People in chat do this all the time. They'll be like, they're, they're responding to something that we say, and then they'll use the word that or it usually. And then it's like, say what you mean. Don't okay, okay, okay. But now that you gave swole shit, I'm going to uh, respond with a positive note. Yeah, that's a good guess, swole, like the antagonism between individual freedom and social rules. I think that's Uh-oh. that's a good, at least a good guess at what the generalized antagonism would be. I, I can't confirm it, but it's certainly a good guess. Uh, the antagonism between individual freedom and social... I mean, I mean, and that's, I mean, and maybe that's what he means by Freud's thing, which would be Lacan's, like, the whole thing is symbolic castration, you have to give up jouissance, jouissance that you never had, but you still have to give up the jouissance you never really had, um, in order to be a member of society. So, there's a conflict between individual jouissance, idiosyncratic jouissance, and social protocol maybe that's the generalized antagonism oh it's a good, it's a good guess okay and we're we're uh Leclau and moff moffa whatever it's probably french huh no Moof. i think i todd says moof but okay we'll go with moofa. yeah so moofa makes it sound like a mob boss but uh so yeah well so so Leclau and moof do they uh are they lacanian that I, I don't think so. I don't think they are at all. I mean, that would be one of the point or master signifier. You cut out for a sec. They might what? Hey, I, I figure that they might have a certain influence from Lacan because the way Zizek uses master signifier and quilting point in relation to social dynamics, they did a similar thing in that book with like having a privileged signifier like that. That functions in those ways, and so maybe that maybe that that was the influence from Lacan. I'm not sure. Okay, but so the point is just that they their book really influenced Slavoj, and it's part of the reason antagonism is such a central concept in his theory of ideology. But but the point when it comes to contradiction is that contradiction opposed to antagonism is internal. Contradiction is a self-diremption. Um, a self-diremption. Yeah. So it's important to note that neither antagonism nor contradiction are opposition. So I know this is funny. Like oh. We started off the left doing all these basic distinctions, but no, opposition is neither antagonism nor contradiction. Contradiction is an internal split. And I want to qualify. Contradiction is an internal dialectical split. Antagonism is an external dialectical split. Opposition is where it substantializes both things. They are what they are, independent from one another. 
and then they happen to come into a conflict with each other. It's as if you have two things that are not interdependent on one another. They are Aristotelian substances. They are what they are in and of themselves. And then they come into a conflict. And so it, it, the idea would be like, okay, if we talk, if both the wage labor, if we're talking about contradiction, both the wage labor and the capitalist are internally split. You would, it, like, we have to think it out, but like the idea is that they both, both those positions involve an internal contradiction, right? Antagonism would be saying, okay, these two positions are dependent on each other, so there's a dialectical relation, yet nevertheless, they are truly pitted against one another. One another. There, there is an external relationship there, even while they are dialectically dependent on one another. Opposition says, no dialectical relationship. They are two pure substances. They are what they are in and of themselves. And then an opposition between the two gets established. So the, uh, somebody who thinks in terms of opposition would say, we could have wa wage laborers would be wage laborers even if there were no capitalists. And capitalists would be capitalists even if there were no wage laborers. Now, you and I laugh at hearing something like that. But that would be how to think in terms of opposition. Opposition. Who doesn't think uh, interdependent terms in the... In hold on, hold on. You, you cut out. Hold on. You cut out. Start again. Son of a bitch. All right. Well, um, so... There's a person got... who doesn't think dialectically is what I caught. Yeah. So there's a person who doesn't think dialectically, uh, which means that they've never really thought about how to things that are enemies or uh, the, the opposite terms in a debate might be mutually interdependent, interreliant, uh, reflecting and mirroring one another in various ways. Um, and, and, and more importantly, that that might be a part of a, you know, they fight it out and they, th and they think of any kind of apparent binary as mutually exclusive. You would say that that person is thinking in terms of opposition if we're doing it, what, Zizek's way, you said? No, like, somebody who thinks in terms of opposition is basically somebody who presupposes substance ontology. Aristotelian substances. Like, things are what they are in and of themselves outside of their relations to other things. Whereas, to, whether we're talking about antagonism or we're talking about contradiction, that's where we make the move to dialectics where we see how two things that are at odds with each other, whether it's an internal division or an external division, nevertheless, they are at odds with each other, but in a way that still presupposes or mutually conditions each other. I thought I said that. Oh, well, okay. I, <laughs> but you said opposite. Okay, well, maybe you didn't. I misheard you, which that would be some sort of a parapraxis too. So, so the person, so the person who doesn't think dialectically just thinks in terms of opposition is what I was trying to say. So then, yes. So, but then, on the other side, though, what happens a lot of the time is when a person learns to think dialectically, they start to see everything in terms of dialectics, and it's like, well, sometimes there's just a real, like, mutually exclusive opposition, and here's where you get the sort of either or Kierkegaardian kind of response, where it's like, no. You're going to have to actually choose. You get married or you don't, and you're going to be miserable either way. And it's right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so it's also important not to see a dialectical relation where there is a, you said, before. It sounds funny, 
trees but existed before what? Trees existed before iPhones. They don't have a dialectical relationship. Okay, okay. Right. I mean, so the point is, don't, like, there's a certain truth, like, this is part of what makes Hegelian dialectics so important to me. It it gives substance ontology its due. Like, it would recognize, like, yeah, not everything it mutually conditions everything, like, you know, yes, there, trees can exist without iPhones. They're not dialectically related like that. So, but the point is, if you do substance ontology to the letter, like a good Aristotelian, then yeah, you're going to not see dialectical relationships. And then you're not going to see a whole lot of what ontologically conditions certain being certain states of affairs. Cool. So, so let's see. Um, yeah. What is, so really quick, last time we, t we, we spent most of the conversation building up to, and then talking about law in its threefold way where there's official rules, implicit rules, and then inherent transgression. Um, mm -hmm. and then we've, for this one, been focusing so far on how antagonism and contradiction have two different meanings and neither of those is opposition. And I'm glad that you've kind of belabored the point on that one because I, I think I get it now and you'd referenced it in the past where I do, I don't think I got it. And so, yeah. Click and I've never, I don't think I've gone into this in a blog post or anything. I actually, I have a little bit more I want to say about this stuff before moving on. Just again, some part of me, when I'm doing a lecture like this, I want to, I don't want to just reiterate stuff I've said on the blog. Even though I, I know at some point we'll probably talk about the the phallus post or whatever. But um yeah, so I do ah, son of a bitch. You cut out again. Antagonism a little bit more. And so there's there's Laclau and Moofs or Laclau and Moffa's influence on Zizek here, but there's also Hegel's. And so Hegel embraced the idea of war, which again, you know, we don't really like <laughs> that rubs us the wrong way. But as a dialectical thinker, his idea was, okay, Hegel embraced war because he thought that external antagonism was the condition for internal peace within the state. And Slavoj kind of seems to have been inspired in, in this lad about war thing. This It's this idea of formal or structural antagonism that is this is why Hegel embraced war. And so the idea is, and it's kind of a simple one, but if there is no possibility of foreign war, then the antagonism migrates within the social order itself. And here when I when I hear this, I don't like it, but at the same time, I see a certain truth to it. So a greater consensus among average Americans about things Americans you know of course then I mean there was obviously the glaring exception of how black people were treated and Native Americans okay but on a general level there wasn't as much internal conflict as we see now and so um the idea is that okay when when we had Russia as this external threat threat the Soviet Union Americans like there was maybe greater peace, uh, greater consensus for a while 
Russia or Soviet Union collapses into the 80s. And now we find ourselves in this very heated culture war. And Hegel could use this situation of saying, see how the antagonism migrated inward in the case of America. In an attempt to bring in new people to the world of philosophy and theory while building on relationships already established, we are doing a countrywide tour of the United States this fall. What's up, guys? It's Anna Dave. Are we coming to a city or a town near you? Do you think there is a venue or audience in your local region that would be interested in a lecture or facilitated discussion about existentialism, critiques of therapism, PMC ideology, self-help, introduction to philosophy, or the time-energy critique of any of those things. This speaking and discussion facilitation tour will include the Pacific Northwest in mid-August, the Kansas City, Missouri area late August or early September, Philadelphia at the beginning of October, and really we're gonna be all over the area there, hopefully, so get in contact with us if you think that we should come visit your state, Phoenix, Arizona, mid-October, and SoCal, especially San Diego, late October. I say especially San Diego because we already have our guide for the San Diego region. What's the difference between a host, a guide, and a volunteer, you ask? Well, thanks for asking, actually. The volunteer role is for people who want to put up posters or in other ways promote the events that will be occurring in their town or city. Whereas the host might have a guest bedroom, guest house, or a place that we can park our van so that we can sleep in our van. We need to know if you would have like bathroom facilities or anything like that. And so the form on the website is where you can tell us what you have to offer. Guiding, on the other hand, though, people who love to guide take a lot of pride in their local knowledge. A good example of that would be Michael Downs when I visited him in Raytown, Missouri. And he took me into Kansas City and we had barbecue and he took me to the mall and to all these other landmark places from his life growing up there. Um, but a more recent example would be my friend Michael in Poland who took us around Katowice, Poland and basically gives a historical and sociological analysis of everything. And it was amazing. It was, it was one of the coolest things we've ever experienced and it made us realize some people just want to provide the space and privacy whereas other people want to take you out and show you around and so if you're interested in being a volunteer host or guide we have a special form for that so please fill out your information and uh, get in contact with us as soon as possible so we can fit you into the schedule because we'll love to meet you touch base with the local community and if you don't think anyone else in your area is interested in the things that you're interested in, if you don't think anyone else is into this stuff, well, we might be able to surprise you. When I saw that poster, Bolgrillard in Boise fucking Idaho, are you kidding me? It was virtually an, an answer to an unspoken prayer, you know, really was. And I just couldn't believe that somebody was interested in the things that I was interested in that I had been interested in for years and had kind of given up on in, in futility. I'd labored 
in solitude for so long, I had no one to talk to about it, no one to bounce ideas off. This tour is going to bring together a lot of people who want to be based in text with the people they're in conversation with. And yeah, I think it's going to be a fantastic year. The only other thing that I want to say is that Michael Downs' first book is going to be published by Theory Underground really soon here. I've got another book coming out really soon here. These books will be spread throughout the United States on this tour. So I'm hoping to be able to do some actual book launch events at various bookstores. Outside of that, I guess the last thing that I would say is that Michael Downs is gearing up to teach For They Know Not What They Do by Slavoj Žižek. We're putting out all these introduction videos and other interviews related to the topic of Hegel, Lacan, Žižek because we want to give people an accessible and sturdy basis in the discourse. The problem is, is that Michael Downs is very busy having to work at a wage slave job. And so if you want to help in freeing Mikey, make sure to go to his Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the dangerous baby and make a donation. Thank you. I would be remiss to close this out without a quick shout out to our patrons and our anonymous donors. Thank you so much for the donations that already we've only been around for a month. We already got over $3,000 in donations. Um, and so thank you and uh, stay tuned for the app, which is on its way. There will be a Fury Underground app. So the current setup is that it is a social media site built around courses where you can suppose that people who are involved in the discussions have a shared interest in the same or similar texts and where you can assume in a lot of the discussions that, yeah, people have read the stuff that you're reading, uh, that you're bringing into dialogue. And so, uh, for instance, the idea of the university by Carl Jaspers, dedicated forum. Slavoj Zizek's For They Don't Know What They Do, dedicated forum. And then as people take the course over the years, new people will be coming into that forum. And so if you get in there early, you'll be able to see how the conversation evolves. And as new people add into the conversation, it'll bring back memories and like things that you want to work through, questions that you had with the first time that you read the text. And so I'm really excited for this. The reason I've built this website is because I think that this is what's lacking in so many other spaces, is that ability to return, to be able to communicate after the fact and in a sustained way on a platform that's not attention grabby and annoying like discord and so stay tuned because there is an app on the way thank you to our donors if you want to donate go to theory-underground.com forward slash support thank you